Open your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 21. It seems like just a very few years ago that a young couple was present here, a young couple a little older than Leah, a couple years older, presenting Leah for baptism. And I had the opportunity, the privilege of baptizing uh, her. Of course, I'm talking about Kevin and Laura. They just seemed that young when they came. They weren't really that young. But it is neat to live through the connectedness of church life. Uh, there are people that I baptized 34 years ago who are no parents, and they've brought their children here to be baptized, and they're raising them in the Lord Jesus, and that's a great joy uh, to see. So, John chapter 21, would you follow please as I begin reading at verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would speak to us from your holy word this morning. I pray, Father, that you would encourage those of us who need to be encouraged. I pray, Father, that we would learn tools that would help us to enjoy you and enjoy the gifts that you have given us and to enjoy using them in your church. I pray, Father, that if there are some present here who don't know Jesus as Savior and Lord, that you would draw them to Christ. Father, it would be our desire that one day when we're assembled at your throne, that everyone who is present here would be present there. Father, work in our midst. We thank you that you're a loving God, that you're gracious, and we're grateful that you have revealed the truth to us that you have revealed in your word. We especially thank you this morning for the food that you have included for us in this passage. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Be honest with me for just a minute, actually with yourself. Don't you at times compare yourself to other people 
and feel that maybe you have been cheated. You look at someone else's lifestyle, or maybe you know how much they make, and you think it's just not fair that they get what they get. I'm as capable as they are. I'm as educated as they are. I'm as hardworking as they are. It's not fair that they make what, I, what they make, and I make what I make. Or maybe you have a friend who has a spouse that is incredibly attentive to his or her needs. That spouse is pleasant, thoughtful, self-sacrificing, and you think it sure must be nice. Why couldn't I have gotten someone that was more like him or her? Or you know someone who looks like you think you would like to look. And you say, why couldn't the genes have come together to make me look like they look? Or you hear of the achievements of someone's children or grandchildren, and you wish that your children or your grandchildren were as gifted, as talented as theirs were, and had achieved as much as they had. Or it could be that in the Church of Jesus, you've observed someone else's spiritual gifts. And you look at them, and you look at the ministry opportunities that they have had, and you feel cheated, you feel deprived. You think, why couldn't I have gotten the charisma, the mental horsepower that he or she has, so I could teach people in the way they teach people? Or why is it that he or she has so much musical talent, and I try so hard, and I got so very little, and I just can't minister in the way that they minister in the church of Jesus. Or you might say, why wasn't I chosen for that particular office or that particular key leadership spot that he or she was chosen for? Or how come I have to do ministry with so few resources, and so-and-so has so much handed to them with which to minister, and mine are so inadequate? It is also natural to compare ourselves, our physical and our emotional health, to that of others and question God's fairness and maybe even His love. Christians often think, why am I struggling with this disease when he or she is 2x my age and they're not troubled by this disease at all that's supposed to run with age? Why is that? Or often they think, I suffer these dark, dark moods, this depression, and other people I know are upbeat all the time and cheerful. Why couldn't I have come into the world wired like they are wired? Now, you have most likely made comparisons like this. I think we all do on occasion. I think it's part of human nature to occasionally think in this particular way. The Apostle Peter is recorded here as having done something that's very similar to what I have suggested we do in the introduction to my sermon this morning. Peter had been forgiven by Jesus for denying Jesus repeatedly in the courtyard of the high priest. He had not only been forgiven, but better yet, he had been restored to his apostolic ministry. Jesus had told Peter three times, care for my sheep, take care of my lambs, and the church of Jesus, Jesus' sheep, his lambs, is the most important thing to Jesus. Jesus died for his church, and he's turning over the care of his church to the apostle Peter. 
Christ even prophesied about Peter's future steadfastness in his witness for Jesus. Peter will never again deny his Lord to save his skin. Peter has learned from his sin. He, ha he will remain the rock, and he will even die for his faith. I'd like you to look first this morning from our text at Jesus' prophecy uh, about Peter. What is it that Jesus predicts will happen in Peter's life? Now listen to what Jesus reveals about Peter's unwavering identification with him and the gospel and about Peter's eventual martyrdom. In John 21, 18 through 19, the Lord says, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you to a place where you do not want to go. And we are told that this he said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. Jesus, who as God-man, works everything in accordance with his perfect holy will. And because he does that, knows what the future holds, tells Peter and the six other disciples who are present that the restored apostle will boldly proclaim that Jesus is Messiah and Lord in the face of all opposition until the day he dies a martyr's death. The words of Jesus' prophecy clearly indicate that Peter is going to lose his freedom to dress himself and to go where he wants to go at some point in his ministry. They imply imprisonment and being led out to the cruelest form of death that the world has ever known, crucifixion, a death that was to be avoided at all cost. Now, church history tells us that Peter was crucified for his faith under the Emperor Nero about 34 years from the night on which Jesus prophesied this about Peter. In 2 Peter 1.14, I believe Peter acknowledges his understanding of Jesus' prophecy about his death. There Peter writes, I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. Now you could say, well, maybe, you know, the Lord just told Peter at this stage of his life, your life's almost over, and maybe there was no link to the prophecy. But I think because the church knew this prophecy and all, Peter includes this, and he's intimating that he's going to die that death that was prophesied by Jesus. He's getting ready for that. It's close at hand. The church father Origen says that Peter chose to be crucified upside down because he did not feel himself to be in any way worthy of dying in the way Jesus died. The evidence for that, we are told, is less than conclusive. What is conclusive is that Jesus treats Peter as though his denial of Jesus had never happened. Jesus tells the penitent Peter in 2119, follow me. Now, I'll tell you what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean, come on, we're going to leave the lake now. You all follow me. I'm getting out of this place. That's not what it means. Jesus will not even be present much for Peter to follow in a literal way or the others to follow. 
because in this period of time between Jesus' um, resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of God the Father, he only appears for brief moments in time, and then he's gone. So this is not a literal kind of thing. The command is the follow me of discipleship, as Jesus had given it earlier in Matthew chapter 4, verse 19. Jesus is telling Peter one more time, like in that threefold, tend my sheep command, he's telling Peter, you are forgiven, you are restored. Get on with the work I have given you to do. Get busy building my church. So let's think about Peter for a minute here. He's back on track. Will his response be immediate, unquestioned obedience to his master? Will he eagerly get involved in doing what Jesus has tasked him to do, taking care of sheep, building the church? Will he eagerly do that now? Well, John provides the answer for us in John 21, 20, and 21. Jesus' prophecy. Look at Peter's inappropriate concern. In 21, 20 to 21, we read, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, the one who had been reclining at the table close to him, and said to him, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, this one that's described, he says to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Peter's mind is on how John is going to die. John and presumably the others who were present knew that Jesus had told Peter the manner in which he would die. Apparently, the phrase that Jesus uses in 21:18, stretch out your hands, in this context is a euphemism for death by crucifixion, death on a cross. Now, there are those who speculate that maybe Peter asked this question out of genuine love and concern for the Apostle John. You know that Peter, James, and John were a part of Jesus' inner circle. They were the closest to Jesus and presumably close to each other because of that. An example of the closeness to Jesus is seen on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, Jesus takes these men to that place where they will witness Jesus' eternal glory well, they will, will hear his father affirm uh, Jesus' sonship and his deity, and where the father will speak of his love and his sheer delight in his only begotten son. Now, this theory is that Peter is deeply worried about what his good fr friend John may be required to suffer for his faith in Jesus. But remember, Jesus can read our hearts. And Jesus' response to Peter's question is so very strong that we are led to a far different conclusion than that one. Look at the Lord's response again in 21:22. Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So it's theoretically possible that Jesus is responding to a heartfelt concern of Peter for John's well-being, and that Jesus 
simply doesn't want Peter to get kind of sidetracked from his mission that Jesus has given him by thinking too much about John, but it is much more likely, given Jesus' sharp response here, that Peter asked this question in order to find out if he alone among these men is going to have to suffer a brutal, a horrifically brutal death for his faith. Peter is not so much rebelling against Jesus' prophecy about the manner in which he will die. He simply wants to be sure that Jesus will be fair and equitable in his treatment of him, that his lot will not be significantly worse than that of his peers. What is he doing? He's comparing his future lot in life to that of another follower of Jesus, and that is almost always a dangerous thing to do. Now look at the way John, the writer of this gospel, describes himself in 2120. He describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, the one who had been reclining at the table close to him. Now, the standard explanation for why John describes himself in this way is that he's a humble apostle, and he doesn't want to plaster his name all over this book that, uh, that he writes. But couldn't it be in this situation here that John is adding this to let us know that Jesus viewed Peter's concern as less than noble? Now, follow me here. Couldn't this be here to inform us that Peter wanted to know if John, this very special apostle, this object of Jesus' special love, would get special treatment in his death, a better deal than Peter was going to get? Someone has written, it's hard to reconcile ourselves to sufferings and troubles in which we stand alone. Let me say that again. It is hard to reconcile ourselves to sufferings and troubles in which we stand alone. So think about this. If all believers had strong-willed children that were incredibly hard to raise, if they all had rebellious teenagers, if they all had career setbacks, if they all had modest incomes, if they all had tough marriages, if they didn't have, you know, other single-person great boyfriends or girlfriends, if they all had physical or mental health issues, if all the widows or widowers we knew had lost their spouses at young ages, then we would not feel cheated. But we all know Christians who don't have our limitations, difficulties, and hardships. And that makes us question at times God's fairness and maybe even his love for us. Now, I think this text teaches that your life is planned by God, that the life plan that you're living out was fashioned by the sovereign Lord. Jesus' response to Peter's concern about how John will die in 21:22 is this, if it is my will that he remain, that is not die, until I come, what is that to you? 
the men present know that when Jesus says, until I come, he's talking about the final judgment. There is an end to this world order, and Jesus is going to return, and he's going to wrap up everything that was intended for this particular age. And the men present know that Jesus is referring to that. Each of those present also knows that Jesus is claiming that he has the ability to determine how and when, under what circumstances, uh, Peter and John and their own lives will end. They understand that. They never question the absolute certainty of Jesus' prophecy with regard to Peter's death, do they? They also understand that Jesus' ability to foretell, to prophesy, how these things will come to pass is because he determines them. He makes them happen. They know Jesus is saying, I will how all men and women live, and I will how they will die. Dying is just another part of living. It's just part of the package. For Jesus to claim to have sovereignty over all of the lives of all humans, what must he be? Well, he could be an egomaniac. Maybe he's a blasphemer. Maybe he claims to be God, sovereign Lord, and he's really not. Or maybe he's truly God. Which do you think he is today? Your eternal future. And eternity is real. Bad news this morning. Each of us here is going to die unless Jesus returns first. And we're going to step out into eternity. You need to answer this question because your eternal future is determined about or by how you answer it. Now, I want to challenge you, if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, to read this gospel. The first chapter is tough. After you get through the first chapter, it'll be much easier. Or read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and ask the Lord, ask God, if there is a God, to show you from these Gospels who this Jesus is and to open your eyes to the truth of this Scripture. And when he answers your prayer, I promise you, I promise you, you will find this Jesus to be the God-man who must be worshipped and adored and the Lord whom you will want to serve. You must serve him, but you will want to give him your life. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you believe what I'm saying here this morning, what I believe Scripture clearly teaches? Do you believe that your life's plan has been fashioned by Almighty God? Do you believe that He determined the length of your days? Scripture teaches that in many places. Do you believe that He determined the family into which you were born, or was that just random chance? Do you believe that he determined your temperament, your level of intelligence, your appearance, who you would marry, what you would do for a living? Do you believe he determined everything about your life? If Christ determined how Peter would die, then he determined how Peter would live his life to end up at that predetermined type of death and time of death. Now, I'm going to tell you this teaching is hard to wrap our heads around. It just is. There is mystery involved. We readily admit it. But it is God's revealed truth 
in this scripture and throughout his holy word. Now you might say, doesn't that make me a puppet? No, we make the choices we desire to make. And in that sense, we freely choose what we're doing. I wanted to pursue my wife from the moment I saw her. I wanted to pursue her for marriage. Nobody made us get married. It was our choice. Never once has either of us not thought that that union was sovereignly determined, that God brought us together. And it was belief in the sovereignty of God in a previous age, not too far divorced from where we are, that kept couples together. They took very seriously the vow that what God has joined together, see, that's God's sovereignty, let no man put asunder. Barring a biblical divorce, we stayed together because we believe God brought us together, and we worked on the problems. We worked it out by God's grace. Now look, your joy, your peace, your happiness, your contentment in life, rise or fall, I believe, with your view of God's sovereignty over all things. Do you believe that you are what you are in this minute in time because God planted? God is not responsible for our sin. We long to do our will over his revealed will, and we do it. We do it. We sin willfully. Nobody drags us into sinful conditions. It's driven by what we want to do. We are responsible for our choices. But even our sin is worked into God's plan, isn't it? Read Acts chapter 2. Peter's going to preach on the day of Pentecost to a group of people who killed Jesus. And he's going to say, wicked men desired to take the Lord of glory and put him to death. But he was delivered up by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of Almighty God. Sinful men doing what they want to do, it was all obviously a part of God's plan. God is not surprised by our rebellious choices. He weaves them into the fabric of what he is doing in our lives. Peter's denial of Jesus in the courtyard of the high priest was as much a part of God's sovereign plan for Peter as the sermon he preached in Acts chapter 2, where 3,000 people came to faith in Jesus and were added to the church. If you believe that your job that you have right now, rewarding or boring, easy or hard, is one in which God has placed you, if you believe that your current financial position, abundant or spartan, is God-ordained, if you believe that your children, your grandchildren, your spouse, your parents, gifted or slow, obedient or rebellious, loving or distant, or distant, are placed in your life by the sovereign Lord, that your appearance, your intellect, your health, your family of origin, your place of birth, your abilities were given to you by the creator of all things, you can relax, and you can take comfort in knowing that the God who loves you, the Christ who loves you, the God who loves you as much as he loves his own son, John 17, 23 tells us that, 
And the God who is infinitely wise is using the pain, the frustration, the confusion, along with the joys of life for his purposes and your ultimate good. Your life was planned by God. It was planned to bring glory to God. Peter knew from what Jesus prophesied that he would bring glory to God in the way in which he died. Look at 21.19 again. John writes this about Jesus' prophecy. This he said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. Peter's martyrdom, martyrdom will issue in people coming to faith in Jesus. There will be also people who see what Peter got for following Jesus and say, I don't want any of that, and step out into eternity without Christ. If we study Romans chapter 9, we know that God receives glory in both of those, and that's for another time. Peter was most interested in knowing how John would die, and Jesus says in effect in 2120, that is none of your business. It served no purpose for Peter to have had that information. It may have caused him to be consumed with jealousy and self-pity, and those feelings may have kept him from ministering in the way that he was supposed to minister. Because Peter is going to die a slow, agonizing death designed to be the most cruel death that the world has ever known. Well, church history tells us that John died a natural death at about 98 years of age. Now, both men had incredibly productive lives, and their lives are bearing spiritual fruit right down to this very day. They both brought glory to God through their lives and deaths, but their lives and deaths were radically different. John wrote a gospel and three epistles. He protected the faith against false religious teachers and their teaching, banished to the barren island rock of Patmos by either Nero or Domitian. He received the glorious vision of the revelation of Jesus Christ, the book that closes the New Testament. Released from exile by Emperor Trajan, John had an active ministry into old age and probably was the only apostle who did not die by execution. What about Peter? Well, Peter was the far greater evangelist. Thousands came into the church through his powerful preaching. He was used to write two New Testament books and a huge thing. We cannot ever forget this. God used him to open the church to the Gentiles and thereby ushered in the worldwide spread of the gospel. And as Peter and John look at their earthly lives now from their heavenly perspective, I am certain that they agree that everything about their lives and their deaths was perfectly planned by the omniscient God to bring him maximum glory. And why are we here? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. They are grateful that God was in control of all the things that happened to them and that their lives served the purpose for which humans are created. And I want to promise you something. 
When you get to where they are, you're going to view what happened in your life in the way that they do now. We close with this. We are to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and off of others. When Jesus said in 21:22, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. He was telling Peter to mind his own business, to focus on his life and ministry, to refrain from the very human tendency to compare our lives to the lives of others. He was telling him to just live out his life of discipleship in the way God had willed it for him. The apostle is not to compare his life to others and question why his life is different from anyone else's. Now, this is recorded, obviously, for our benefit. It's been protected for us, this narrative. It is dangerous for us to compare our lives to others. If we do this, we can become filled with pride. You know, I'm really pretty good. Think that we're superior than others. Damages our ministry. Or we can become discouraged thinking about how others are smarter, wealthier, healthier, more attractive, more gifted, more used than we are, and become dissatisfied wishing that we had their whatever. Just fill in the blank, whatever it is that they have that you long for when you look at them. We can become resentful also toward God, thinking God is not fair, God is not good. God does not love me. When we keep our eyes upon Jesus, the sovereign Lord who plans each life, we can accept that we have been given just what we need in order to bring maximum glory to him. And we can then enjoy our lives as he planned them. And with humility and meekness and zeal and love, live them in a way that points people to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to point you to him now. Can you see him on a cross dying for your sins? The sinless one dying in your place, taking your hell, the hell that you deserve for your sins? Can you see that? If you can see him there, by the eye of faith, dying for you, ask him to come into your life to take away your sins. Tell him you want him to forgive you that you want to be holy before God, wrapped in His holiness, Jesus' holiness, and that you want to serve Him as Lord. You want to give up the reins of your life and do life in the way He wants you to do life as He tells us how to do that in His holy word. You can have Jesus right now. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you and thank you for the lessons of Scripture Father, um, I believe most of us are guilty of this, if not all of us. Help us, Father, to keep our focus where it should be. Help us to trust you that you know what you're doing in our lives. And Father, for those who are present who don't yet know Jesus, we're so grateful they're here. Father, we always want this to be a place where people can, can question who this Jesus is. And, and receive some answers and ponder those answers and compare them with Scripture. Father, we pray that if there are those here this morning who are doing that, 
that you would create faith in them and that you would bring them to Jesus. We pray this not for the honor and glory of people here or an institution, but for the honor and glory of Jesus, the one in whose name we pray.